thing that I enjoyed the most after all those years was actually teaching freshman English, which at Hillsdale College was not freshman English per se, it was introduction to the great books and the great conversation. So you get 18-year-olds uh, coming in and so on, and they usually have two sections, and so 40 students and so on. And it was a two-semester course, so the first semester would always take them up to the uh, end of the medieval period, which would usually be then with Dante and St. Thomas Aquinas. And it was a hefty, hefty, hefty load to get all of this done in uh, a single semester. Oh yeah, you're nodding your heads here. So, <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> so I would, you know, I teach these classes, and you're standing up there in front of you, you've got 18 to 20 kids sitting in front of you, and you're watching them, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, they are absolutely engrossed in every single thing that I'm saying. This is the best of all possible worlds. I would pay money to do this. And uh, one Friday afternoon, a young man, a baseball player, kind of shy, came up into my office. And uh, we'd gotten to know each other, and he looked at me and he said, uh, did you see what I did today? I said, no. <laughs> you didn't see what I did today? I said, no, I didn't see it. He said, well, I moved up and sat down next to her. <laughs> I said, well, who is she? He says, well, we call her Aphrodite. <laughs> and I go, well, yeah, she said, oh, the girl on the left. And he says, yeah, so I went up and sat next. You didn't see me? He said, no. <laughs> he says, so, he says, you know, he says, there's a party tonight. And he said, uh, I'd like to go up and talk to her. And I said, well, well wonderful, it's a thing to do. And he says, no, he said, uh, uh, do you know any good lines? <laughs> I'm thinking I should put a little, you know, plaque outside Dr. Dan's Lonely Hearts Club. So I said to him, I said, no, you don't need that. Just go out there and be yourself. And he looked at me and says, do you really think that'll work? <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, so Monday class starts and of course he's sitting next door. And then he came into my office a little bit later on, and he said, you know, yeah, things are pretty good. And he said, uh, I'd like to write her a letter. <laughs> You've only known her for the weekend. <laughs> write her a letter. And he said, yeah, I'd like to write her a letter. And he said, uh, do you know any good poems? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these things happened, and it was a lot of, a lot of fun <laughs> over the years. But this, these, these two in particular, uh, junior year, they came around again. I'd had them in a number of classes. It was a morning in the springtime, and they came in, and uh, they said, we have something to show you. And I said, okay, what it was, and her hand came out, and she had the ring. And I said, well, that's just wonderful. You know, I mean, it was sort of like in the cards anyway, so we'd just been waiting. And I said, well, your parents must be very proud. And they said, well, we haven't told them yet. We came to you first. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's good to reflect on. If we were now uh, in...
college and we were doing the great books, we would have had the first unit done, which would have been on Judeo-Christian faith. You know, I can't remember. Can't remember. No, I got other stories about that. So anyway, five weeks, you get through with the section on the Bible, and uh, then you turn your attention to one, the exam, and then you have, of course, the uh, first formal out-of-class essay. And what follows after that then are roughly two weeks of grading. And the way in which I did this, I gave them 30-minute sessions in my office for two weeks. So they come into the office and give them the grade on the essay, and then we make our way into the, into the uh, papers. And I found that the computers have these things you can start to speak to, and then it will transcribe text, which is a wonderful way to grade, because I just put a number on the paper, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. And then the computer would spit out exactly what I said which turned out to be just great, and I loved it because uh, nobody can read my handwriting anyway. <laughs> well, it was really, really funny to listen to them sitting outside there in the hallway waiting for their appointment. And so they would sit there, and I would give them back the essay and the grades, and so on. And then we would go down through the paper bit by bit by bit with my comments. And uh, someone of them would go out, and I said, well, how'd it go? He said, well, I said, how much was your paper? Well, five pages. Uh, what were the comments? Well, I'm still making my way through the comments. They were five pages. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you go through these sorts of things, and you're trying to be really, really serious with them, and this really, really works, but it's intimidating for an 18-year-old kid to sit here in an office, and you're trying to explain to him, it's the 11th commandment, you don't do this, you do not split your infinitives. You do not have verb tense problems, and so on. And this is what, uh, the way in which I did this. And this was exhausting, but it was the thing that I wanted to do with 18-year-old kids, bring them in my office, and get them in the right way. Dr. Kirk one time told me, he said, you know, when you are teaching those kids the great books, the great conversation, you are aiming at a literal, literal conversion in the way in which they think. And I think he was absolutely right. So if we were now back in college, and we're now up to about the eighth week, we would be reading the ancient Greeks. One day the professor would come in, and he would pull down an image titled Pericles' Funeral Oration. The painting is a snapshot of Athens at a moment in time. And it's a funeral oration where Pericles is elegizing the Athenian soldiers who are dead because of the Peloponnesian War. Now, if you look closely at the painting, you'll notice the assembly down and around the front. If you notice also then, look to the background, because way, way, way up on the top is a city, and that city is being idealized. That's a symbol of order. Everything around Pericles on the bottom is a symbol of disorder. And you can even see on the bottom there, little statue head of the goddess Athena, and all of that has collapsed. So Pericles is a statesman, and in the speech he reminds the people that, quote, if we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all, and the freedom we enjoy extends to ordinary life. We should not therefore exercise a jealous surveillance over each other. 
As for the men who died, their spirits were unnerved when they did not shrink from danger. To be happy means to be free, and to be free means to be brave. So what the oration really is, it's a eulogy for the greatness of Athens, which is tragic. Because we know that those citizens down at the bottom there could no longer live up to the standards set by those dead soldiers. So what is idealistically portrayed in the painting at the top is the ideal. That's a metaphysical Athenian city upon a hill which would soon decline. There's a pretty easy, remarkable similarity between that and a later speech which begins fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new birth of freedom. And that, of course, is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which is also a funeral oration. So let me do one more thing here that's equally pertinent, because George Washington was tired, and he did not wish to serve a second term as president. There was a good deal of animosity between his Secretary of State and the Secretary of the Treasury, and he was worried. And so he agreed, although being tired, to a second term. Thomas Jefferson was his Secretary of State, and around him were supporters who adopted the name Republican to emphasize their political views, which were largely agrarian, directed toward what they called the common man. They were opposed to anything British, and they also opposed a strong federal government. Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, supported what was called the Federalist Party busily creating a federal fiscal system, a national banking system, a federal excise system, and they were assuming a good deal of a national debt. So these two groups then are actually the earliest political parties, and they were called by Washington factions. And he used that word to warn the people that political factions would obstruct the execution of the laws created by the government, and therefore then prevent the branches of government from exercising the powers that provided them in the Constitution. So in his eight years in office, George Washington was never aligned <clears throat> with either political party. But at the end of those eight years, he was deeply, deeply concerned about the stability of the Republic, disordered by factionalism. So why should we care? Pericles' oration is in the background, and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is in the foreground. But like other very important documents in American history, so is George Washington's Farewell Address, which was his letter at the end of the 18 year, eight years of his presidency to the American people. And there's a paragraph in that letter that rings profoundly. Washington wrote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. If so, in vain would be that man to claim the tribute of patriotism who would favor to subvert the great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. If the sense of religious obligation desert the paths which are the instrument of investigation in a court of justice, 
reason and experience forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. George Washington was very happy to become a private citizen. But nor, more for those students now enrolled. We're about to pile on a lot more reading. Pericles, Homer, Sophocles, the historians, Herodotus and Thucydides, Heraclitus, Parmenides, Plato, Aristotle, and so on. And by this time, the little egg of their brains are just beginning to fry and brown up around the edges. So there's an overriding metaphysical court of first principle kind of question regarding natural law. Would we all agree that a natural law theory of justice is a basic requirement for a well-ordered society? Silence reigns in the classroom kingdom. This is Heraclitus. After a survey of the Greek historians, Herodotus and Thucydides, at around 475 BC, we turn to a fellow by the name of Heraclitus who writes philosophy. And he does this because he has time on his hands. He looked out into the world around him and he observed that like the flow of a river, everything is in constant change, which he said was a cosmic cycle. He began what is called natural philosophy. And so he writes in his book then, which is titled Nature, that no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Everything is relative, which is also the case with justice, never the same from one moment in time to the next moment in time to the next moment in time. And he's then what you would call a materialist. About the same time, a fellow by the name of Parmenides appears, and he too has a lot of time on his hands. And he says, yeah, but assume that all that cosmic cycle flux is an effect. What's the cause of that effect? Now he's using logic here, cause and effect, a logical mode of thinking. The river flows, but what's the prime cause for that movement? And whence does it originate, and is it uniform? Silence reigns in the classroom kingdom. It gets... So he constructs a theory which suggests a first principle, and that is the uniform cause is God. And by the way, this is now with the small g, not the big g. This God is monotheistic and not polytheistic. This is when you come to that moment in Greek history when all of those polytheistic gods and goddesses go away. So it's an important moment now in Greek history because when you come to Parmenides and his theory, it's actually the beginning in Western philosophy of what is known as metaphysics. So he argues that God, which he names now the One, does not change, and that the existence of the One is timeless, which becomes known as eternalism. Plato and Aristotle will later label the monotheistic God as the prime mover, the primum mobile. And the argument is going to be used also by Dante in his poem, The Divine Comedy. Justice moved my maker, God eternal, 
brought me the power and the unsearchably high wisdom and the primal love supernal. The professor then begins to ask a series of Socratic <clears throat> questions. This is a teaching methodology adored by many, many people who simply don't really know what they're doing. So here's the question. Can something come from nothing, or so it more likely that nothing comes from nothing? This is when a football player usually says, can you say it again? <laughs> Silence reigns. Or is it more likely I thought somebody right now would have said, yeah, at Seinfeld, nothing comes from nothing. Or is it more likely that something exists, that something must have come from something, and that something ultimately has to be God, who is self-sufficient, but also self-reflexive and emanating. So Parmenides re reasons then that God is the source of what he calls first principles, which are metaphysical, and not subject to cosmic cycles. Now, to prove the point then from Parmenides, the professor starts with something just a little bit more simple. Is it true that one plus one equals two? Thank you, let's see, you're getting there. <laughs> now the football player says at this moment, Doc, don't go so fast. So the problem now is one plus one equals two, and then you say, can that change? I hope not. So then we say, is addition an idea? Sure. If it exists, does it exist as a source in the emanating mind of the God? Sure. So what we're witnessing here now is something like this, in a very simple way, is the advent of metaphysics in Western civilization, which deals with the first principles of things, which include abstract concepts or ideas. As for metaphysical first principles, there is truth, and it exists in the mind of God without change. There must be an idea of truth in the self-sufficient but also self-reflexive God from whom the first principle truth of em Ruth emanates. And you and I, we share it since we have minds. And so the business of life, then, is to seek out truth and embrace it with our lives. Then the professor poses more Socratic questions. Is liberty an idea? Yes. Is the idea of liberty a good? Yes. Is equality an idea? Yes. Is equality a good? Yes. Are these two standards, then, of perfection? Yes. They are ideals, and therefore they are first principles. Should the purpose of living be to bring these ideas of liberty and equality into being? Yes. If yes, why? If not, and so on. Now comes the next question. Can one have too much equality? If yes, why? If no, why? Eventually, with coaching, the students will arrive at a Socratic resting point, which argues that too much liberty can diminish equality, and too much equality can diminish liberty, which means it's a sort of law of diminishing returns. So the question, 
That being the case, what other first principle can we find that holds in balance then liberty and equality? And the answer comes from a very introverted young lady, Micah Swafford, homeschooled from Oklahoma. And with the voice of Minnie Mouse, she speaks. The first principle of justice holds in balance liberty and equality, and one can never have enough justice. It's also in the Gospels and all over the Bible. And I know this because you told me this in your office last Friday afternoon. <laughs> I have stories about her, which involve a switchblade. <laughs> so our thinking is that the eternal mystique is metaphysical and precedes the temporal mystique the form of the source for order, the first need of all, and the ideals of liberty, equality, and justice, which again are first principles, eternal verities, or what Dr. Kirk oftentimes called the permanent things. What causes those disruptions of the metaphysical is uninformed ideology, inverted religion, disorder, separation of the eternal from the temporal, the divine from the political. Now, it's been a very, very long time in our Western history where discussions about metaphysics have been part of the public opinion, in the public square, and also in informing the public philosophy. It's been replaced by materialism, a doctrine that nothing exists except matter, and its evolutionary movements and modifications. Athens declines, as does the Greek Golden Age. So Athens crumbles. And so we read on Plato, Aristotle, and we come to about 200 BC when we venture into Polybius, who writes history, but it's political and it's constitutional. And for the roots of American order, he's a pretty neat guy and influenced the framers of the United States Constitution, who, by the way, read his histories. He's Greek. But he's living in a time now in what has become Roman Greece. Dr. Turk, Kirk mentions him in the roots of American order at least three or four times. So Polybius writes about Roman, the Roman Republic from 264 BC to 146. And what he's doing is he's observing the daily doings of Roman life, which he defines as the Roman constitution, which is on the other hand largely unwritten but from observation, he's able to identify three elements balanced with regard to liberty, equality, and equilibrium through justice. There were, first of all, the consuls, the patrician class. They were the administrative masters, and subordinate to them were the magistrates. Then there was the senate, and that was an aristocratic body controlling the treasury. What's left? was all free Roman citizens, not members of the patrician or senatorial class, the average citizen, the plebiscite, supposedly the most honorable in terms of virtue, and to them actually was given absolute authority because they owned the power of the vote and because the state belongs to the people. So this was the basis then of the Roman constitution at the time of the Roman Republic. So Polybius writes, too, of Roman law, largely unwritten, civil law based upon custom, which would be common law and the law of nations, 
mercantile law understood to be ethical, and he also writes about the Roman formalities and procedure, equity, fair dealing, and common sense. A natural law, he's a bit stoic. He writes that in history, there is an inevitable law of growth and decay. In time, governments degenerate in characteristic ways. Monarchies become tyrannies. Uh, <coughs> aristocracy becomes oligarchical and democracy to mob rule. So the Roman Republic becomes then the Roman Empire. And we know that the end is in sight. And there's an image here which we can use to draw and illustrate that moment in time. The framers of our Constitution knew that Cicero was a prudent man, a just man, and a defender of the Republic. Following Julius Caesar's assassination, Cicero became, though, an enemy of the autocratic Mark Antony, who declared Cicero an enemy of the state. His soldiers went to Cicero's estate, and they murdered him. They beheaded him. They hacked off his hands. His head and his hands were then brought to the Senate chambers and placed on the rostrum. Antony's wife, Fulvia, went to the rostrum, pulled out Cicero's eloquent tongue, and stuck a hatpin through it, from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. Cicero was a lawyer, and his On the Laws would have been a required book for anyone reading law during the time of the War for Independence and the framing of the Constitution. When it came time to sign the Declaration of Independence, 25 of the 56 were lawyers. As for the Constitution, 35 of the 55 who signed were lawyers, albeit we have to be very careful here what we mean, since there was at that time no such thing as a law school. But there was a need for very competent legal counsel. Even if there was a sentiment against lawyers, which meant legislation actually existing, which prohibited pleading in court for hire. And in the Carolinas, lawyers were described as cursed, hungry caterpillars, <laughs> whose fees eat out the very bowels of our commonwealth. Now, the folks at William and Mary, they like to argue that theirs was the first to be associated with the university law school because 1779, George Wythe, one professor, was appointed professor of law and police. There was one smallish, smallish school in Connecticut called the Litchfield School of Law, whose most famous student was the traitor Aaron Burr. I guess it depends upon where you go to law school. <laughs> so we know then what the framers were thinking about law and order, they turned for nurturing again to pre-modern history. So all the way back to Cicero and the lessons to be learned from the fall of the Roman Empire and to a statesman, Cicero, and about whom Dr. Kirk spends a more than inordinate amount of time in the roots of American order. But again, it's a sad tale because with Cicero, we arrive at a much more extant discussion of Roman law, especially, again, his argument for natural law and a prescription, then, for order in his own tremendously disordered time. So his treatise on the laws is one of the great books of Western civilization 
and of course, obviously devoured by all those students back in Hillsdale College in English 101, now in their eighth week. It's written in dialogue form, draws impetus from Plato's laws. His concern with natural law principles of justice can even be simply stated. Do not initiate violence without good cause. Keep your promises. Respect people's private property and common property and be charitable to others within one's means. I think that sounds a little bit Boy Scouty and not really philosophical because philosophy is tough, it's hard, and you should do everything you can to avoid it at all costs. Run. Anyway, they also seem to be almost suggestive of something like a father's advice to his son. The only thing missing here is my father's advice to me. Do nothing to embarrass your mother. So this sounds again like that. If we think about the propositions, though, there's nothing inside of them with which to disagree. Natural law does not have to be something that is abstract but intrinsic exactly to the word law itself, and if viable, needs to be distinguished in our human nature and the ends of our human nature, or so said St. Thomas Aquinas. So in general principle from Cicero, the natural law of liberty and equality and justice derived from God, have an eternal and immutable quality and morality. Cicero then argues that the state exists to uphold common law, which is founded on custom and tradition, and civil laws, both of which are presumed to be in harmony with natural law. If a civil law is not in harmony with natural law, it's a bad law and does not need to be obeyed. And if the state does not uphold right reason in agreement with natural law, it's not a state, or so argued Cicero. Now, unless there be some confusion by what he means by God and nature, he was an adherent to Plato, whose idea, again, of the one was a perfectly happy, eternal being possessed of reason. By nature, he does not mean a sort of tiptoeing through the tulips, but something normative which can be intuited by a prudent man of reason. Law is a force of this nature, a metaphysical standard allowing all of us to reach our highest, highest potential. It's not to be manipulated by one person's power over another. A blueprint for natural law is the connection between our rationality and our republican institutions. So his enthusiasm then was not just legal philosophy, but also political philosophy. When he claims that laws alone are not enough for just society, there must be liberty enjoyed by all and cannot exist unless the people have the supreme power embedded in a constitution. Government's responsibilities are limited to protecting life, liberty, and property, and the pursuit of happiness, which will best come, Cicero argues, by a separation of powers. So it's clear that Cicero's now Roman Republican pre-modern concept of the rule of law passed into our own American political philosophy and jurisprudence and permanently enshrined in the Constitution. And like the framers, he bestows responsibility with the people. And as long as the people remain virtuous, well, if we jump forward a bit to St. Thomas Aquinas, Natural law, for him, is also something in a similar manner. The divine command theory 
which is there to help us understand the differences between right and wrong. It's God's purpose and plan for all things because of eternalism, which will always exist and might include the natural law argument to protect and preserve life, which begins at conception, educate your children, live prudently in society, and know and worship God. And we would be remiss if we didn't reference two other figures now upon whom Dr. Kirk spends a good deal of admiration. This is William Blackstone, whose commentaries on the laws of England would have been required reading for any of those 18th century wannabe lawyers. Now, Blackstone writes, and this, by the way, is now about 1780. Blackstone writes on the laws that when God formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he impelled certain principles upon that matter from which it can never depart and without which it would cease to be. Now, to read Blackstone can be really, really tedious, but he's unequivocal about natural law, which does rest upon, he says, the foundation of nature, but it also rests upon revelation. And no human law, he says, should ever, ever contradict those two foundations. The framers understood and knew Blackstone not as if he were simply dispensing rules, but someone to lay for the fledgling an American foundation in natural and common law. And so at the beginning of our constitutional experiment then, there was, remember, at this time, no such thing as a flood of legislation sweeping over the nation yet which is all it does these days, sweep over the nation. Now, I've mentioned the Federalist Papers. Hamilton was the author of the 78th, which argued for judicial review, the best known power of the Supreme Court, and to declare an act of Congress then, or the president, unconstitutional. This is John Marshall well-read in Blackstone, veteran of the War for Independence, the first biographer of George Washington, and then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court between 1801 and 1835. After the ratification of the Constitution, the Supreme Court was the weakest of all the branches. They didn't even have a place to meet. They rode horseback on circuit. So then, Marshall then strengthens the American judiciary as the co-equal branch of government. And this is a bit how judicial review works. Let's say that the legislators in the House and Senate pass a piece of legislation, and in this particular case, let's call it the Judiciary Act of 1789, Section 13, a piece of legislation which authorizes the Supreme Court to issue writs to persons to become circuit court judges. Now, a legal case makes its way to the Supreme Court then in 1803, and it's a very famous one, and it was called Marbury v. Madison. And again, the details are very tedious. But when the Marshall Court then issued a decision, they did so by citing Blackstone, and then declared Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1781 unconstitutional because that piece of legislation enlarged the power of the Supreme Court, which meant that the United States legislature had actually sort of accidentally enlarged the Constitution, which they can't do. So ever since then, 
It's been up to the Supreme Court to decide what is or isn't constitutional. Judicial review is also the basis for Dobbs v. Jackson, which gave the green light then federally to overturn Roe v. Wade, which argued for, you see, a constitutional right for abortion. One part is whether or not abortion rights are also essential to ordered liberty and part of the nation's common history and traditions. The decision argues that the court must guard against the tendency to confuse the term liberty by enlarging the meaning of what it was meant by liberty from the confusion with the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. We owe this process now to the single Federalist paper by Hamilton and its application by John Marshall brought back into vogue now by those who read the Constitution according to its original intent. And you'll hear this debate going on all the time now. Those people are originalists. So it's a visible American Constitution. Dr. Kirk was an originalist, which means, again, interpreting the text by asserting that all statements in the text must be based on the original understanding of the text at the time it was adopted. This means the document is stable from the time of its enactment and can be changed only by the steps set out in Article 5, which sets out the processes by which amendments then can be added to the Constitution. So the next part of this brief civics lesson then, and part of the debate is from those, on the other hand, who argue that the Constitution is a modern living document, which means the text evolves and always then is capable of adapting itself to new sets of circumstances. And if you ever listen to the hearings in the Senate chamber, you find this going on all the time. Do you think it's a living document or are you an originalist? So what's of interest then are issues that pop up when one person argues for, say, constitutional natural right to an abortion, even though such is not an enumerated right, but what has come to be understood as an unenumerated right. Turn me then in the following way. Ideas have consequences or they might be constitutional or unconstitutional. This is the Supreme Court case now of Buck v. Bell, which set a legal precedent in 1927 because it allowed states to sterilize inmates of institutions. The court argued imbecility, epilepsy, feeble-mindedness are hereditary. Inmates should be prevented from passing those defects on to the next generation. It was an eight-to-one decision. Carrie Buck, whom it called a feeble-minded daughter of a feeble-minded mother and herself the daughter of a feeble-minded mother, should be sterilized under the 1924 Virginia Eugenic Sterilization Act. Buck v. Bell determined that sterilization laws did not violate the due process of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution because sterilization was done for the protection and health of the state. You ever read The Great Gatsby, a Fitzgerald book? Okay. There's a character in there whose name is Tom Buchanan. He's a eugenicist. There's a little sort of secret in that book. So what's going on here, by the way? You know, the person who wrote the most interesting part about this is 
uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And he's a Darwinist, social Darwinist on the Supreme Court. And his argument uh, in defense of the decision is three imbeciles, three generations of imbeciles is enough. So one can argue then, you see, that the due process clause is in the fifth amendment come away with the understanding that although enumerated, there's an argument for the protection and health of the state which is unenumerated. And you come along in due time, especially to when Roe v. Wade was being decided on the basis of the best available medical science, that these particular unenumerated rights exist outside the Constitution as a kind of vast penumbra. And that's the word they use, which is sort of like a kind of gaseous cloud surrounding the thing. So what's going on here? Well, the means of interpretation is based upon, did you ask me a question last week on interpretation? Here we go. <laughs> I was hoping so. <laughs> I couldn't quite remember, but it was in my mind. Anyway, the best interpretation now is based upon the best available living science used then in making judicial decisions. Thus, there's a scientific advocacy for bringing about an outcome, and that would be the improvement of the human species by improving the genetic quality of the human population which would mean eliminating negative genetic traits. This, by the way, was wildly accepted in California. And from wildly accepted in California, migrated its way to Germany in the 1930s. Such would be the theory of justice now in constitutional law if the text is a living text. Darwinism is in the background of Buck v. Bell, but utilized now into a kind of social science known as social Darwinism which argues certain people in a culture are innately better, which leads to a theory in law in which constitutional issues then are resolved by the best available medical science. Is this modern spirit of law informed by the best biological and medical science? Is it a causal effect of order or disorder? There's more. A whole lot of uh, many 19th and 20th century reformers adopted a form of philosophy called utilitarianism, from which we learn the fundamental axiom of the greatest good for the greatest number. And this again is modern. Utilitarians tend to argue that natural law <clears throat> is mock law. When utilitarianism now crosses over into legal positivism, we end up with an argument that unlike natural law, which holds the view that the law should reflect moral reasoning and should be based on moral order, legal positivism holds that there is no connection between law and moral order, which means one cannot say that something is good or bad. It's either going to be relatively adequate or relatively inadequate. Legal positivism argues that statute laws are made by political superiors over their inferiors. Now, an example of legal positivism could be something like this. As a matter of economics, one could include enactments that at one time made it legal for white people to own black people or even black people to own other black people, and you could even throw some Native Americans into the mix. So that's legal positivism, and it would be an issue, and we would have to go back and read the Lincoln-Douglas debates to see how it was working its way out. Since legal, po legal positive enactment then makes it a rule of law, people can take action to legitimize it. 
And what makes it utilitarian then is that the enactment could be rationalized on the basis of economics. And the legal positive argument in a compromise could make certain people three-fifths of a person for voting purposes. This is where you look at Article 5. So would then legal positivism and utilitarianism be a source for order or disorder? This is John Dewey. And he's an advocate of a prominent American philosophy called pragmatism, which argues that only those ideas which have practical consequences are going to be good ideas. And it too rejects metaphysics in favor of what is called behaviorism, which then has revamped the American public school system by arguing that education is the process of adjusting children to their environment. What, though, would pragmatism have to do with justice? Well, you do something like this. You take a couple of issues about which society might be feeling unease. One of those symptoms might be capital punishment. People are uneasy about it. The other one might be, they'd say, that the citizenry is deeply feeling unease because of the overburdening of college loans. Notice that these two symptoms, then, are the result of historical forces which can increase or decrease that unease. Now, in this particular case, then, all you have to do is sign an executive order. <laughs> if your income is less than $125,000, I will forgive. That's how it works. The historical forces, on the other hand, are going to persist and become acute if the political system remains aloof. So somehow, you see, that political system has to come to terms with the current moment, the current mood, and the word for this now is act progressively because a progressive solution is the cure for that disease. This kind of pragmatic judicial progressivism is actually John Dewey's idea of a utopia. This is John Rawls author of a 1971 book titled A Theory of Justice, which is a work of political philosophy and ethics, and oftentimes referred to as the most important book of political philosophy of the past century. Rawls is in favor of utilitarianism, but only in relationship to economics. Is there a moral theory then, apart from utilitarianism, which could inform the spirit of laws? Well, he's a bit unique here because he's sometimes referred to as the father of neoliberalism, which tends to argue that society should be structured in such a way that the greatest amount of liberty is given to its members and limited only by the notion that the liberty of one member shall not infringe upon that of any other member. It's usually known as the justice as fairness principle with this argument. All social goods are to be distributed equally since the idea is that all citizens are fundamentally equal and therefore reasoning that the spirit of justice has to begin with the presumption that all cooperatively produced goods should be equally divided. The spirit of justice then requires that the law sets a baseline if there are those who are unequally and unfairly beneath the baseline, worst off, in other words, such unfairness needs to be dealt with by the law, which reflects the spirit of fairness 
and therefore should raise those beneath the baseline at least to the baseline. So what's the problem? Well, I'm, we know he was deeply influenced by the social contract theory of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and on the other hand, his theory of justice holds out, and this is a quote, a vision of a re reconciliation and a realistic utopia. So Rawls theory, so to speak, such a theory of justice would have the consequence which would be the perpetually peaceful and cooperative order, one in which decent and liberal-minded people could work diligently together to pacify aggressive states and in turn secure core human rights. Now, if you think about this in more detail, the goal then in Rawls' modern theory of justice as fairness proposes to eliminate all the evils that have plagued human history, which is to suggest that people are not selfish or immoral because of original sin. I know now you're sitting out there and I should be getting, if you were, I were out there, I'd be getting antsy. I would remiss if I didn't thank you now for your patience. But my sense is that modernism, especially in the last century, has created a dilemma, and that dilemma needs an antidote. The dilemma can be characterized as an effect when the dominant American philosophy in the public square is utilitarianism, pragmatism, educational scientific theory, education being the behavioral adjustment of students to their environment. What's absent is a discussion about natural law, natural rights, and common law. Because of utilitarianism and pragmatism and John Dewey's argument that education is the adaptation of young people to their environment, we have divorced ourselves from the great conversation that you find in the great books. Colleges, on the other hand, will forego all kinds of general education programs until now these days most colleges don't have general education programs. They will promote the fact that 95% of our graduates have jobs, are working in their major fields, starting salaries are, acceptance rates are, retention rates are, and so on. And the whole thing is in a sort of like statistical handcuffs. This is a photo. This is a photo of Catholic convert philosopher Jacques Maritain, who in the darkest days of World War II in 1943 wrote a redeeming little book. And it is titled, The Rights of Man, and natural law. Simultaneous to this book appearing in 1943, there's a little bit of conference held at Casablanca. And at that conference is Roosevelt, Stalin, Churchill, and some of the other people involved. Now what's going on in that conference at Casablanca is the argument that we're going to win this war. The mood was optimistic. My old dad at this moment had managed to get his way out of Africa, he had gotten to Sicily, and he was now over in Italy somewhere if I had the military movements of his group properly. So the problem at this particular conference is we're optimistic we're going to win the war. Then what? What should we do afterwards? So there's the optimism, but there's a lot of destruction. Things need to be rebuilt. So what we have then is this intention on the part of Maritain, C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, T.S. Eliot, I'm forgetting somebody. These are five people 
who then are arguing at the same particular time, once the wars end, we have to build a program here, not only just to rebuild the world, but rebuild the world according to something very different. So it's a guide then on how to rebuild, restore, and redeem culture after World War II on natural law and natural rights, both again having largely discarded as topics in the public square and the public philosophy. Maritime says it's going to take an extraordinary amount of moral clarity and an extraordinary amount of intellectual courage to rebuild civilization. We've got to be careful because Maritime is often thought of as too progressive for the right and too conservative for the left. But what do we know about him and why should we care? Because we know him to be one of the principal exponents of scholastic Thomism in the 20th century and who spent many, many years in the United States during World War II where he taught for years at Princeton, Chicago, and then a batch of years at Notre Dame. When he retired, he moved back to France and he lived in a religious order until his death in 1973. But to read him is to read a philosopher who is working in continuity now with the thought of St. Thomas, which led to his intellectual defense of Catholicism and Thomistic thought post-World War II. There are multiple points of coherence, of course, but he mostly held now that ethics that you could learn from the Greeks are important, perfectly reasonable, but they are inadequate in of themselves because the Greeks lacked the understanding of mankind's ultimate end, <coughs> salvation or no salvation. So what he begins to offer then in the 1930s and 1940s was a philosophy theology which he called incremental Christian humanism, which caused some cries of despair, mainly because of that word humanism, because there are so many people these days that will quickly attach the word secular in front of it. His point was simple. Mankind is a special creation, and that creation is neither utilitarian, pragmatic, or behavioral. Now, noting for the moment, St. Thomas was drawing from Augustine and his Trinitarian elements in human beings, existence, life, reason, memory, intellect, and will. What if, Maritain asks, if those increments were unfettered, which he suggests is one of the problems with modernism and World War II and an illustration in World War II of what he called the unfettered human will. For him then, the solution is Christian humanism. He recognizes that there is something irrational in man, and he also understands that the year 1943, the year of our Lord, might be a year of crisis, which makes the argument it is possible, or perhaps the only way, in which Christian humanism can tame the unfettered human will. So peculiar ideas, you see, have a consequence because in time they become fashions and then they strike for people even a kind of brilliance, which you discover if you read Rousseau. This guy sounds really good. Descartes, he sounds really good. Sigmund Freud, he sounds really good. What then then is a man of Christianity where a peculiar idea is ancient and where there is each and every one of us something of an incarnation. 
Maritain returns then to a question posed by St. Thomas with special regard to that moment in Genesis in which mankind was created in Imago Dei. Well, let us go down and create man in our own image. Which means what? Now you're back in freshman English the first week when you're reading Genesis. What does it mean? Thomas says, there's an imperfect likeness of God in human beings. Now, he does not mean God the Father. There's an imperfect likeness of God in human beings, which, by way of revelation, exists perfectly in his firstborn son. For St. Thomas, then, our excellence exists in the fact that God made us, gave us an intellectual soul, albeit that is more perfect in the angels than in us. So what? Well, as I said last week, it all began in a garden long ago and where we learned that Adam and Eve are given what one might call just a couple of natural law prescriptions. And along with that, all of the natural rights that one might need to tend and care for the garden, which of course is the whole of creation, metaphysically. So Maritain is pretty careful in arguing that these notions carefully develop over time and that scholastically when St. Thomas then argues for the need to make the intellectual soul more perfect in the acts of the soul, and that it's the soul that has powers because it's the soul that has knowledge of first principles and natural law. So his subsequent view then of natural law moral theory is that mankind's end goes beyond anything attainable in this life, which was not the case with the Greeks, and which led him to think then that natural law was an order or disposition that human reason may discover and according to which the human will must learn to act in accord with the necessary ends of human beings. That will be tamed by Christianity. With natural law, we learn also that our natural rights liberty to perform our most fundamental duties, which means we can figure out with our reason what is right and what is wrong. Now, here it's important to note that Maritain authored some 60 books. He had time on his hands. But the one that goes by Ventress here again is his 1943 little bitty book called The Rights of Man, Natural Law. And again, it comes smack dab in the middle of the immense disorder of World War II. Is it possible for the scholastic principles of Thomism be used to refute what Maritain called paganizations? by which he meant Marxism, fascism, scientism, Nazi racism, all these ideological notions which had been created in the human mind but had no foundation in reality, but had become unfettered. He notes that at one time, in St. Thomas' time, all the different forms of knowledge, scientific, political, theological, historical, philosophical, economic, you name it, every single one of those would have been related one to another as a unified whole, which one might call then the liberal arts. And no one plucked one at the expense of the others, merely to argue that one should choose one's major on the basis of whether or not you're going to get a job. One... Hmm. We had at, uh, at the college for 
quite a while, a very, very fine chairman of what we call EBA, Economics Business Administration. So he was a gentleman and a fine scholar. And he was doing everything he could to engage his EBA department with other areas of the college. And so uh, he came to me and he said, uh, do you know any good novels on American business? And I said, sure, there's a William Dean Howells, The Rise of Silas Lapham. And he said, would you like to come and teach it to our business students? I said, sure. And we had a great time. I mean, it was as if when I was working with this novel on this American businessman, and these kids were just, had a fire lit underneath them. They were so anxious to talk about it and so on. And then his health declined, and he had to go then uh, elsewhere to make a lot more money so he could provide for his family in the event he died. So a new person comes in and revamps the whole EBA thing all over again. And these things have to go then to uh, various committees and then the faculty votes on them and so on. And uh, so I went to this guy and I said to him, I said, I, you know, I'll vote for this, but let me prose something for you here. I think that every single student at Hillsdale College should take a general education course in Chaucer. And I said, I vote for you, well, you vote for me. And he said, no. And I said, why not? He says, because they don't need to know Chaucer to get a job. Naturally, by the way, English and history and biology are the three largest majors at Hillsdale College. Natural law, therefore, may not be written in graffiti or elsewhere, but is still to be held out in front of us as unwritten first principles. So given that, could we hold out the possibility that post-World War II, the best political order could become one which recognizes the sovereignty of God. That happens in 1953 when the phrase under God gets in the pledge. And get this hope that such a culture would emerge then and become the public philosophy of the American Republic. And I'm wondering these days whether it's still, still possible. Thank you. That's a pretty good painting. Anybody have a question? Every week I get more depressed. No, 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 no. That's not my question, but... I mentioned to you that there's a whole variety of conservative, Orthodox, Catholics who begin to appear in the 1950s. And they have magazines, First Things, Chronicles, you name it. And uh, they're geared up. And one of the things they want to do in the 1950s is that they're beginning to advocate for a certain kind of Thomism to appear back in the magazine culture. And as it goes along, of course, then, too, this gets picked up even by in the late 50s and 60s by some American bishops. And these American bishops then are getting all of this together and they're headed to Vatican II. <laughs> they think they've got just the right stuff, not just simply to modernize everything, church dogma and so on, but to carry to Vatican II an argument that Americanism and the American experiment of self-government under law is very possibly the best source, the best place for a burgeoning American Republic. And they were, they, were, they were geared up. Now, it's interesting to follow this because it's one possibility merges in history. And then what happens? Roe v. Wade. And you can just see it slamming into a wall, just like that.
So who knows? Who knows? But uh, Maritain held out all kinds of possibilities, as did T.S. Eliot, as did C.S. Lewis, as did W.H. Auden, and so on, that uh, this could work. So, but uh, Thomism is not easy. <laughs> there's some history about it, and if you'll just give me a couple minutes here, I'll recite it to you. But this is, this is a time in which there's something interesting happens, and that is the Islamic Empire moves east. And Constantinople, now Istanbul, which was the seat of Orthodox Greek Catholicism, those Orthodox Greek scholars, Vamus, and they head to Rome. <clears throat> and they bring along with them a bunch of heretofore unknown books which get translated from the Greek into the Latin. And among them are a raft of books by Aristotle, a raft of them by Plato. There are some by a Muslim scholar by the name of Averroes and so on. And here now also is eight centuries of church learning in all of those medieval monasteries. And in all of those medieval monasteries, those monks have been laboriously transcribing book after book after book after book after book. And so St. Thomas gets hold of these books by Aristotle, among which are the metaphysics. There's a wonderful one called On the Soul. And he says, I got my tools. And so he sits down and it gets tedious because he has identified 10,000 objections to Christianity and he'll write them, objection one, I answer that. Objection two, I answer that. And he's using a form of logic that we call syllogisms, it was a pretty close extended syllogisms. And it's a marvelous piece of work. All umpteen volumes of it, but it's pretty tedious. I mean, who wants to sit around and read syllogisms, one after the other after the other, but it is magisterial what he does. And there are interesting uh, panels that you can find. There's one in the Louvre that has him, and he's holding a book, facing out to whoever might be looking at the panel, and lo and behold, on his left is Aristotle. On his right is Plato. <laughs> They're his guys. Down there is Averroes. Up here is Jesus, and Jesus is looking down, and what you want to see is a little cartoon feature up there. So, you did good, Thomas. You wrote well about me. And then on the bottom of the panel is the Pope and all kinds of other people, the recipients of these things. And so if you get into it sometime and you want to find, say, all right, what did, uh, what did Thomas say about uh, what it means to be created in Imago Dei? Well, you go to 93 and you hold it up and you read his nine answers to that problem. And so it's, it's something magisterial. But can you just imagine the kind of education that one could get, general education, if something like that became part of a college curriculum? Anyway, don't get depressed. <laughs> You're not even from Minnesota, so you can't get depressed. <laughs> How's it going? Could be better. <laughs> anyway, I thank you for your attention. I don't mean to, you know, have too much, but I appreciate it.